Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is called Trouble Within from Nehemiah 5. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John chapter 2. And we'll begin our reading at verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which he had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. And he that loveth his brother, abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. May the Lord bless in the reading of his word. You may be seated. Please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. We have been looking at the obstacles, opposition, troubles that had hindered the work from the get-go. Of, uh, of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And we're going to be looking at something a little bit different in this morning's text. Now let me ask you a question. What is the, what is the greatest enemy that the, the church of God has? Is it the hostility of a secular world, of secular society? Is it the oppression of a hostile government? Is it the growing global threat of militant Islam? Is it the cults? or materialism, or moral decay, or maybe some other things we could come up with. Years ago, the newspaper comic character Pogo said, We have found the enemy, and he is us. And the church's greatest opponents have not generally been those from without, but those within. The opposition within may come in many forms. We often hear of hypocrisy in the church. People claiming to believe one thing but failing to act it out in their own lives. Service for the glory of self rather than the glory of God. Exaltation of man rather than the exaltation of God. We also deal with theological errors and unbiblical practice. All of these are but a a sampling of the conflicts, the difficulties, the errors that would hinder and even halt the work of God that he has called us to do. Now, Nehemiah, we have seen in the last several chapters, has had to uh, overcome a number of challenges in order to to build the uh, the wall. The wreckage and rubble that was there, and it had been there for a couple of hundred years, or 450 years or so, uh, of the previous devastation. The hostile propaganda of the surrounding nations, their threats of violence, all had largely been overcome. We had seen God do some remarkable things. Now comes another issue that threatens to stop the work, and that is economics. And although all of the original group of people, you go back to read the first part of, uh, by the way, there's a whole, there's a generation and a half between the, the first half of the book of Ezra and the second half of the book of Ezra. So the people that are building this wall are the grandchildren, and sometimes great-grandchildren, of those who would come back with the decree of Cyrus there at the beginning of the book of Ezra. 
the people who had come back, that original generation, were, were quite well off. You look at all the stuff they brought with them and the cost of doing it, and they were given, many of them were given a lot of money by the folks that stayed behind because they were going to help them along the journey, help them get established once they got there. But times had changed, some things had, had occurred. The disparity between the wealthy and the poor had grown due to a number of factors. And the wealthy, under the present circumstances, were taking advantage of the situation, resulting in further poverty and rendering many of the people utterly destitute. With no income, no food, no home to go back to, go back to or to work from, the, uh, the work of building the wall was on the verge of stopping. A confrontation was needed. A resolution needed to be taking place. Yet the situation was to be remedied and the work was to continue. I'm hearing this. It's, it's, it, it goes, it makes, uh, anytime there's some difficulties, and we are experiencing with the plague and some of the aftermath, we, we, we hear about class struggle. And uh, it's the, the rich versus the poor and all this other stuff. Um, is there a problem in, that, in those categories? Yes, very frequently there is. But that is not the situation here in our text. What we have here is some taking advantage of the misfortune of others. Satan is always ready to lead believers into some act, lead believers, mind you, into some activity or attitude that will hinder the Lord's work. Sometimes it's something we might think is fairly minor. And yet, uh, we can quench the, the work of the power of God, uh, in our lives by, by sin. And we can create offenses that would create schisms in the body that would hinder the, the greater work that God has called us to do. The situation here in Nehemiah, let's look at verse 1. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews. So a conflict not dealing with the, the Samaritans or the Ammonites or the Philistines or the, the Arabs to the south, but rather one group crying out against another among those that were building the wall. For there were that said, our we, our sons and our daughters, are many, got big families. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Now understand, corn, let me pause here for just a moment. The corn that we call corn is a new world product. All right. It doesn't, it did not naturally grow on the other side of the Atlantic. And uh, when we deal with the 1611, when we're dealing with the King James Version, the word corn, when this was translated, meant grain. All right, so let me specify that. When he's talking about corn here, he's talking about wheat and barley and rye and millet and any of the grain products, products rather, that they would have grown in that day. And, uh, and so these folks are, are destitute. They're having to borrow money just so they can eat and it'll get more than that. But their outcry is not against their their enemies. It's not the fear of violence. That had largely been taken care of. But rather against their their own people. The wealthy taking advantage of the poor. And by the way, we see that even in the best of places, the best of times, the best of countries. Say, really? I thought I thought things were angled they're a little different. Now I'm telling you, we have we have taxes in this country that specifically target the poor. Really? Really? I thought, I thought we had a graduated income tax and everything was, was, was targeted to the, the rich should pay a bigger share. Well, that's what they want you to think. But we have several things that, that target the poor. You know, you ever think about, uh, cash for clunkers? All the poor people can no longer, there's a shortage of used cars right now. You can't find clunkers. 
Why? Because when they did the cash for clunkers, they destroyed them all. Poor people don't have transportation. They can't get a car. The lottery. Who buys lottery tickets for the most part? Poor people hoping to, hoping to finally make it rich. When I was a kid, the poor people in Pontiac would come down and work at the car wash down on Woodward Avenue. And you could always tell when it was payday at the car, at the car wash. Because there would be a line of guys over at the drugstore buying lottery tickets. They would spend half of their income on lottery tickets. You know what that is? That's a tax on poor people. It's also a tax on stupidity. But it's a tax on poor people. And these folks were helpless. It was beyond their ability. These are circumstances. Now, I don't have to run out and buy a lottery ticket. But for these folks, it was beyond their ability. They were crying for help from God. They were crying for help to the governor, who happens to be Nehemiah. We're starving. We've got lots of kids. And we're working on the wall. We are not at home tilling our our fields. And look at verse 3. Some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy corn because of the dirt, because of the fa- there was a famine going on. They had mortgaged their lands to buy, buy food. There was a lack of rain. If you look at how they had things laid out in Babylon, Babylon was flat, 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 flat. And you had the Euphrates River running through Babylon. And they had a canal system that went out miles from the, from the Euphrates. Three, three, four, five, six miles out, they had a canal system. They had a great big huge area that they cultivated and everything else. In Judea, the land does this. You can't build canals. There is no big river. What about the Jordan? The Jordan is, is 30 miles to the east. In Judea, where the people were living, it's hilly. And yes, they do grow crops there in some of the smaller valleys and so on. Well, what are they dependent on? They're dependent on the rain. And they have, they have two rainy seasons. They have one in the fall and they have one in the, in the late winter and early spring. And their crop rotation and so on was dependent on both of those things happening as they usually did. But sometimes, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes there might not be enough rain. Sometimes there might not be any. And all that seed goes to waste. The plants might sprout up initially, but they will wither away, and there is no crop. And if there is no crop, there is no food. And the food that is to be had comes from their enemies who are going to be charging top shekel. And so they've had to mortgage their lands. Maybe there was a plague on the crops or something, but they could not grow enough to eat. It was circumstances beyond their control. We are impoverished, we are starving, and the only way we can get resources, understand that uh, a lot of places around the ancient world had different trades and stuff that they, they uh, things that they, they made that had a huge demand. The Greeks did pottery. And, uh, they would, uh, they would load this stuff up and they did fancy stuff. You know, some of you, you probably, most all of you have seen the little paintings and stuff they had on the sides there. There was a huge demand for that stuff. They loaded it into ships and they would take it all different kinds of places and trade. The people who lived in, uh, what is now Turkey would, would make this dark black cloth that was in huge demand as far as tent material and stuff was concerned. They raised a particular type of sheep in that area that did, that produced a wool. And, uh, there was also dyed cloth. The Phoenicians did the purple. And so the folks there, they did the purple. There were other folks in certain parts of Turkey that had, a, had access to a dye that produced red. And it was only found in those places. Uh, there was a huge demand for their stuff. And they had some, some lucrative trade that they could... But in Judea, all they had was crops. 
Now they had olive oil and they had grain and they, 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 they were, they were wild, uh, bees and they had honey. But still it was things that were dependent on the rain. It wasn't something that people could manufacture. It was something that grew. And they would trade those things. That's how, uh, remember Solomon paid for the timber and stuff, uh, to build the temple. Was from the crops. And if there's a crop failure, then they're not only dealing with starvation, but they're also dealing with, with, uh, with great poverty because there is no means of making money. And so if I'm going to get any money, I've, what have I got left? I have my bodies, my body, and I have my, my land. And if I sell my land, if I mortgage my land, and by the way, when you, when you mortgage land, if you do a mortgage today, you get to live in your house. You know, if you're buying a house, the standard operating procedure is that you have a mortgage and you make a monthly payment, but you live in your house and you, and you, you know, you accrue a certain amount of, uh, uh, of uh, wealth that way. If you mortgage your lands here, you did not necessarily possess them. The person you, the money lender got to keep your property until you paid it off. Which means I don't have, I'm not cultivating my land. The other guy's got my property. And, and, and I don't, I can't grow more food because I don't have my land. I can't, even if I could grow food, I, 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 I can't pay it off the debt. And so I have, by necessity, because of starvation, impoverished myself and I have no means of bettering my situation. Because other people have my property. Now here's the question. Who has my property? The money lender. Who's the money lender? He's my brother. He's the, the wealthy fella who's working on the next section of the wall. But he's, he's a fellow Jew. And that was the, that was the problem. And then also, he says there in verse four, there were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute. And that upon our lands and our vineyards. So mortgaging not only to buy food, but also just because there's a, a, a dearth, just because there's a famine doesn't mean I don't, I, I can, I'm excused from my paying taxes. I've got to pay taxes on top of that. And in order to pay taxes, I'm having to borrow money to pay taxes. And so I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a bad way. And they say in verse five, yet, yet our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. Our children is their children. And lo, we are brought into bondage, our sons and our daughters, to be servants. That's the word slave. We are having to sell our children into slavery because we've exhausted everything else. And some are in bondage already. And neither is in our power to redeem them. For other people have our lands and our vineyards. And it isn't the Samaritans. It isn't the Ammonites. It isn't the Philistines. And it isn't the Arabs to the south. It's our fellow Jews who are helping build the wall. Verse 6, I like Nehemiah's response. I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Now, is it justifiable for a believer to be angry? Mm, Let me tell you this. Under certain, if certain criteria are met, the answer is yes! We can be justifiably angry. We run into problems when we stay angry, when we allow bitterness to, to creep in, or when there's unjustified anger. In this particular case, it was justified. And, Nehemiah, the guy who's angry, can also do something about, he can fix the problem, which he is about to be doing. But he's angry. 
In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, it says, Be ye angry. Go ahead and be angry. It's all right to be angry. But sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. You know, the old marriage counseling and thing is never go to bed mad. And it's good advice, but it's also good not to go to bed mad, period. And so it was righteous, it was justified, and it was controlled. And I love the... I love the first phrase of verse 7. Then I consulted with myself. Yes, I, I had a meeting with myself. Got together my counsel and I got my counselors together and I consulted with myself. There are times, advice is always good. Seeking counsel is a good thing. It is a wise thing to get the opinions and viewpoints of others. But in this particular situation... I don't think it required a great deal of consultation. He consulted with himself. And it doesn't give a long explanation. He, he, he looked at this situation and he knows the answer. He knows exactly what he's going to do. There's a rebuke here. Now, number one, the people, the moneylenders were disobedient to the Old Testament law. They were disobedient to the scripture. In Leviticus, And I'll read this. You don't have to turn to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 37. It says, if thy brother be waxen poor, if he becomes poor and fallen into decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Even if a foreigner is living among you, take no usury, that's interest. Do not take interest of him or increase, but fear thy God. That thy brother may live with thee, thou shalt not give him thy money upon interest, or lend him thy food for increase. You're to help him out. You can lend him money, but you can't charge him interest. Okay, that's the Old Testament law. In verse seven, he said, "I consulted with I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, You are exacting usury interest, every one of his brother." And I set a great assembly against them. He, 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 the work stops because everybody has to come to the meeting. And they have a giant meeting. He's got the money lenders over here and everybody else who has been loaned money over here. A great assembly has gathered together. Because the governor has, has called them together. These guys are on the spot and they, there is no, no other alternative. They're stuck. And I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. A number of, uh, of because of poverty in, in, in uh, previous years and so on. Now understand, until Nehemiah showed up, they didn't have a Jewish governor. The governor would have been a Samaritan who was over them. And he would have oppressed the people. And he had no concern for the personal well-being of the people under him. Matter of fact, he despised them. And so a lot of these people during times of famine, during times of poverty and so on, if they're unable to pay the taxes and so on, if they are sold into slavery, they got sold to the Samaritans. They got sold to the Ammonites. They got sold to the Philistines. They got sold to the pagan people all around them. And Nehemiah and his people had redeemed the Jews from the the pagan people around them, had paid off their debt, had bought back their freedom, and brought them back into the land. says, we... Have after our ability, as much as we have been able to, have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And then he says, and will you even sell your brethren? You are undoing 
what we have been trying to fix. Why are we here in the land? What has God called us to do? What is our purpose for being here? What does the law say? You are even selling your brethren. Or shall they be sold unto us? Are you taking advantage of our generosity, of our determination to make sure that the Jews don't remain in slavery? By you, we're just going to make this a vicious cycle. That you're going to continue to to sell these people into slavery. We'll keep buying them back. And, and you guys are being enriched by this whole situation. That's what was going on. Verse 8. What do they have to say at the end of verse 8? And they held their peace for they found nothing to answer. The accusation is 100% accurate. These people are on the spot. All, and not necessarily everybody, but a great many, a great multitude of the people that these people had done this kind of thing to are standing over here, and here they are, and here's the governor. It's the, the money lenders that are on trial. And granted, it's not a jury trial, but we have a great many witnesses and a great many spectators and a great many of people who have a grievance against these guys. You are having a trial go on, and Nehemiah is the one that's going to be making the decision. And from the get-go, you already know what he's, what he's got in mind. They found nothing to answer. He says, you're acting like the heathen. You are exploiting your brethren. You are undermining our purpose. Nehemiah and his allies had redeemed the Jews from among the Gentiles. The oppressors... Those who were taking advantage of the situation were seeking to perpetuate the practice to their own personal benefit. We have a testimony to maintain. You and I do, the people at this time. The Jewish people in the Old Testament dispensation were to be a light to the surrounding nations. They were to be different than the rest of the nations. That's one of the reasons why they, they had to dress differently and they ate differently and so on, was just in part to set them apart from the other people. But they were to be different. They were to live holy lives their relationship with one another and so on was to be different than those around them. And for the, if they followed the law, it was. But their failure to, to observe the law, their failure to keep God's commandment, made them no different than the nations around them. So the Samaritans and the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Arabs to the south could all look at them and say, well, you're no different than we are. And therefore, your God is no different than the God we worship or gods we worship. There is no difference. Holiness becomes a mockery. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, he says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, if he have not works? Can faith or can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, and notwithstanding ye give him not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? It's all words. There's no actions involved. If we truly believe, if we are truly fearing our God, it's going to manifest itself in what we do. That we, and these folks here have been very much putting self before the needs of others and self before the work of the ministry, self before the building of the wall, putting personal prosperity before the the basic well-being of their brethren. So he says in verse 11, restore, I pray thee, to them even this day. Their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Give them back their property. And also the 100th part of the money and of the corn and the wine and the oil that you exact from the nurse. You're going to return the interest that they had been paying you as well. Now, this does not necessarily mean the debt was canceled. But it means there's to be no interest. 
and the people get to use get to have their property back for their use. Return the pledge. Return their land so that they can they can you can you will be restoring back to them their their means of providing for themselves and frankly paying you back. Give back the interest. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, again, the Old Testament law is not just how they were to worship. It is the constitution of ancient Israel. It dealt with all the relationships and how they were to govern their country. How they dealt with one another. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 19, it says, Thou shalt not lend upon interest to thy brother. Interest of money, interest interest of food, interest of anything that is lent upon this. You're not to do this. Now, this is a uh, one of those situations where the bad guys are in the bind. And they said, then said they, we will restore them. And we will require nothing of them. So we will do as thou sayest. And I called the priest and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. So in front of the whole crowd, and they brought in the priests, brought the scroll, put your hand on the Bible. Do you swear to do this? Yes, okay. In front of all these witnesses, yes, we will do this. And then he said this, I also shook out my lap. That's kind of an odd phrase. What does that mean? Okay. When I'm up here, I, I got this long cord, and I got this thing in my back pocket, and there, there I've, I've got just, and, and if I leave it like this, there have been times where I have caught my knee in this, or I'm, I'm, I'm in my wild gesticulations, I catch a finger in it, and I end up pulling it off my, my tie, and it, so what I do is I, I almost always do this, I take a, I do, measure it out a little bit, and then I tuck it up under my, under my belt, <clears throat> and that way it's, it's out of the way. Also, contrary to what some people may think, 2,500 years ago when this was written, the men, except for the priests when they were officiating, the men did not wear trousers. Okay, Levi's, Carhartt's were not available at this time, which is a crying shame. Which meant they didn't have pockets. They didn't have pockets. I know, good grief, what do you do with your hands? Gotta have pockets. They didn't have pockets. And uh, so when he says, shake out your lap, what they would do is they would take the, the, the robe and tuck it into their belt. They did wear a belt and they would use that as a pocket. Right? And so when he says he shook out his lap, he's like he's saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to empty your pockets. I'm going to, I'm going to seize your wealth and your property. In other words, if you don't abide by this, if you don't keep your word, if you fail to keep your oath, and she, he did this as a, as a, as a gesture and he said, uh, so God, Shake out every man from his house and from his labor that he that performeth not uh, his this promise. Even thus shall he be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, "Amen." If you don't keep your word, then you're going to forfeit your property. I'm going to empty your pockets. May God do this. And the congregation said, "Amen," and they praised the Lord. And the people did according to the promise. They kept their word. So the problem that we saw reviewed there at the beginning of the chapter has been resolved. The people, once they're done with the wall, are going to be able to go back to their, their property, to their land, their, their olive groves, their vineyards, and so on, and be able to pick up where they left off. Yes, they will have a debt, but it's not accruing interest, and they're going to be able to have enough and a means to, to make more money and, and to continue their livelihood. What a difficult situation. What a, what a horrible situation that this group of people was taking advantage of this group of people. Now, in that court 
setting I gave you here where you've got a big bunch of witnesses over here, you've got the, the, the money lenders over here, and then you've got the judge. So you've got three different parties here. You have the people who have been defrauded. You have those who have enough money to take advantage of the circumstances. And then you have the outsider who has shown up. And understand, this has been going on for a long time. Nehemiah has, has been in town probably, almost certainly, less than two months. When this, Absolutely, been in town less than two months when, when this hearing goes on. So this has been going on for a long time. This is what he arrived and was and that was going on when he, when he got there. So he's the outsider watching what's going on. But he also knows Israel's testimony. He knows what we're supposed to be doing. He knows the scripture. We went back to chapter 1 and he's reciting at length in his prayer a section from Deuteronomy. He knows what the scripture says. He's a student of the word. He's also a man of, of, of means, as we shall see. The guy in charge is going to do the right thing. In-house conflicts need to be settled before the work can continue. Everything has stopped while this big hearing is going on. There's a public meeting. The issue is resolved and the work resumed. God's work really, we can go through the motions, but God's work cannot really be accomplished if there's sin in the camp. Issues need to be resolved. So Nehemiah sets the example. He is going to do what's right. He's not going to demand of others what he himself will not do. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the, the 20th year even unto the 32nd year, so for 12 years, 12 years he's governor, I and my brethren had not eaten the bread of the governor. What does that mean? It means he hadn't taken a salary. He hadn't taken a salary. He had not subsisted on the governor's allowance and those that were with him either. He says in verse 15, but the former governors who had been before me had, were, were, were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver, which by the way was a, was a sizable sum in the day. Even from, even, uh, uh, yeah, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I because of the fear of God. I was determined to do what was right. I'm in a situation where I can enrich myself. I'm in a situation where I can make life hard on the people to enrich myself. I will not do it. The guys who were before me did. It's the pattern of behavior. This is how, how it's normally done. I won't do it. I don't care if it's normal. I don't care if everybody else is doing it. I don't care if everybody before me had been doing it. I'm not going to do it. It's not the right thing to do. Yeah, I also continued in the work of the wall. Okay, it, resu- it was resumed just after this thing was taken care of. He says, neither bought we any land. I'm not doing any uh, investment here. I'm focused on what I need to be doing. I'm not going to take advantage of the circumstances like these other people had done. And all my servants were gathered unto the work. The governor and those who are part of his cabinet, those who are part of his administration, are not living in some palatial home, giving orders, and then looking out the window and uh, and rubbing their hands together and just delighted at all the different things that are being accomplished they're out there dirtying their hands with the people. He's out there moving the rock. He's out there directing things. He is out there doing it, and his servants are doing this as well. He's practicing what he's preaching. Now, he's not required to do this by the government. On the contrary. Again, everybody else had, had, had lived well. Everybody else had taken advantage of their position. 
but I won't do it. And here's what it cost him. To, this is this is this is standard for a per- person in his position. Verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table. There's people who are eating dinner with me on a daily basis. 150 of the Jews and rulers, besides those which came unto us from among the heathen that were about us. In other words, uh, uh, dignitaries and, and, and messengers and, and different, different government officials coming and going all the time. So I'm dealing with 150 plus all these outsiders coming, all the guests coming. Now this, which, this is what was prepared for me daily. How do you feed 150 people? What do you, what do you serve 150 people? Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox. I'm going to put that on the, on the big rotisserie. Maybe we'll do that for Father's Day. That sounds pretty good. Six choice sheep. Also, fowls were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine. It would last during the ten days, and then they'd replenish the supply. So that's, that's, that's quite a bit of food. And that's daily. That's daily. One ox and six sheep. Plus a lot of chickens. Yes, they did have chickens at this time. He says, yet for all this... I, Required I not the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. I did without what was my salary, which was normally understood to be my due, because I could see that the people were hurting, and the people were were poor and impoverished, and I, I didn't want to take things away from them that they needed. Understand, he's a wealthy man. He's, he came from a very plush and, and powerful position. So he's evidently a man of some means, so he's, he can afford this to some degree. But he is prob- almost certainly impoverishing himself during the course of this time. He is, he is dipping into the principle in dealing with this. And he said all this, and he says, Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. He practiced what he preached. Now, we need to make sure that we do not compartmentalize our ethics. We do not compartmentalize our practice. I have been in the ministry... For almost, wow, almost 40 years. Wow. And over those years, I have seen a great many people who were one thing when they were here and something totally different when they were away. People that were thought highly of by the people in the congregation and they had a lousy reputation in the community because they didn't practice what they preached. As a believer, as a child of God, we are to be on 24-7. We are to be 100% Christian 100% of the time. Your personal testimony is at stake. And frankly, it reflects on the testimony of the church. Oh, I know about your church. So-and-so goes there, don't they? Yeah. It reflects. It reflects. Are you honest in your dealings? Can people take you at your word? Or are you a stumbling block to somebody else? Certain aspects of your behavior, your reputation, things you do or don't do. Are you a stumbling block? Are you a stumbling block to other Christians? Are you a stumbling block to, to the unbelievers around you? We need to, to follow Nehemiah's example. He did what was right, partly for testimony, but what's the key thing? He did what was right because he wanted to please his God. And folks, when we, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. My life of the time is to be 100% for God. I am on 24-7. My testimony needs to be in place all the time. I need to make sure that I don't put on a facade and and play play the role when I'm around other Christians and then live like the world the rest of the time. I need to be consistent. 
the testimony of my Lord, not just the church, not just myself, the testimony of my Lord is at stake. What does the world think of Christians? What is the perception that the world has of Christians? And a lot of the time, it's not very good. And a single individual living consistently will make the difference in outlook for some people. And also, when we share the gospel, do we have something that people perceive as worthwhile? The martyrs, people got saved by the drove with the deaths of the martyrs. Why? Because here was something that was worth dying for. And here we are living a great deal of peace and prosperity as believers compared to most of the world. Do we reflect something that is, that is worth having? Do we demonstrate that God has made a difference in our lives? Are we doing what we can to ensure that the work of God that he's called us all to do will continue, or are we the hindrance or the stumbling block? Father, thank you for the testimony of a man who lived 2,500 years ago. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for his determination to, to, to make an impact. And as he says there, think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Father, may we have the same attitude, that we are here for your glory, and we are here to make a difference for your glory. May we have an impact on those about us. May we be faithful. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuallop.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.